This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporter, Mizugai. We thank him and all our other patrons for their monthly support. Command codes verified. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Greetings, Admirals. You're listening to episode 231 of Priority One Podcast, the premier Star Trek online podcast, recorded on Thursday, July 16th, 2015, and available for download or streaming on Monday, July 20th at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Jace. And I'm Kenna. Kenna, what do we have in store this week? Well, we have some big news this week. Thanks to our longtime friends at Geek Nation Tours, Priority One Productions will have an official presence at this year's 2015 Star Trek Las Vegas convention. If you are already booked to go this year or have started saving your pennies for the grand 50th celebration, then you're going to want to trek out our interview with Terrace Cassidy, owner and head geek of Geek Nation Tours, and Larry Nemechek, considered by many as the walking Star Trek encyclopedia. Together, they'll bring you a Star Trek experience like none other. So thanks to their sponsorship, Priority One Productions will be bringing you the latest and greatest from this year's Star Trek Las Vegas convention. Check out our blog detailing what you can expect on PriorityOnePodcast.com. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter so you don't miss a beat. Later in Star Trek Online news, Season 10.5 is here. We're looking briefly at the new featured episode, checking out the contents of the new lockbox, and getting the lowdown on the new Tier 6 Resolute Advanced Heavy Destroyer. We're also wrapping up our recent interview with lead designer Al Captain Gecko Rivera, talking about advanced cues, how storylines get written, and more. And as always, before we wrap things up, we'll open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Speaking of hailing frequencies, it's great to receive all your messages. So chat with us during our live stream on Thursday nights at PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash live. Or answer our community questions by commenting on our website, Facebook.com forward slash Priority One, or via Twitter at STO Priority One. Did you know that this podcast isn't all we've been up to? Be sure to keep your eye on PriorityOnePodcast.com for the latest in Trek-themed news and reviews and special Star Trek online videos made specially by our team. And, exclusively on our Facebook page, every month we'll be publishing a new comic, following the adventures of the USS Prioritas. Head to Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast and check it out. Thanks again to all our Patreon supporters that make this show possible from week to week. Because of their support, the servers stay on, the power keeps flowing, and the team keeps producing. Help us improve the show by considering a financial contribution via our Patreon page. One last thing, listeners. Priority One Productions is looking for a new volunteer associate web developer. We have an ever-growing web presence, and our one current developer is stretched pretty thin, so any help is appreciated. WordPress experience is a plus. If you're interested in this position... 
shoot us an email at incoming at priorityonepodcast.com or click on Red Shirt Uncle Sam on our website for more information. And now, over to Elijah to talk Geek Nation tours with Terrace Cassidy and Larry Nemechek. Then let's trek it out. Joining me on this episode of Priority One Podcast is the head geek, Terrace Cassidy of Geek Nation Tours, along with Larry Nemechek, the walking encyclopedia of Star Trek. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me on this episode of Priority One. It's it's a pleasure having you again. Wow, that was quite an introduction. I've never quite uh, got such a welcome invitation or introduction. That's very nice. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, thanks. I, I, I've, I've been going by Dr. Trek lately to shorten that whole horrendous thing and uh, <laughs> that, that phraseology, but yeah. But uh, oh, thanks, actually, no, thanks for having us on. I'm actually gone as Dr. Geek Nation Tours, too, so. Okay. <laughs> Dr. G. It, gentlemen, it's been uh, quite some time since we had you. I think I almost want to say two years since the 2013 Star Trek Las Vegas convention. Uh, and but there's a there's a lot to talk about. First of all, I have to thank you, uh, Terrace, for sponsoring Priority One Podcast for this year's Star Trek Las Vegas convention. Because without your support, we certainly would not have been able to uh, cover the convention itself. And more importantly, though, is that what you are offering is something that our listeners are really going to get excited about. Not just for this year, for listeners that might be attending the Star Trek convention now in 2015, but for the 50th anniversary. So first, why don't we remind everybody what Geek Nation Tours is about? Sure. Geek Nation Tours is a holiday company, a vacation company for geeks by geeks. What we do is create uh, holidays and tours all across the globe for all things geeky. So we have everything from... uh, Star Trek, of course, like you mentioned, to comic uh, conventions, uh, New York Comic Con, to wargaming, toy soldier stuff in Scotland, all the way to battlefields. We just came back from Waterloo uh, from Belgium and uh, went to the reenactment and walked the battlefield. So we do all things geeky, and there's tons of stuff on our site. We're releasing tours every day and uh, more and more uh, coverage on the various geeky genre out there. Now, you don't just focus for the geeks, but if they have a partner that may not be as geeky, mm-hmm. uh, you do offer things for them as well, right? Yeah, by all means. Uh, we have what we call our Parallel Universes uh, program. And so if you have a, a geek and a spouse, no matter if it's a he or she, we can take care of them if they want to go to a ball game, if they want to go to shopping, if they want to go to a few museums, we take care of the whole kit and boodle also. So there's no uh, need to be worried about asking your spouse if you can go on, on a geeky holiday because we will make it as non-geeky as for them as possible. Now, for many of our listeners, they are either attending this year or attend every year or saving up their pennies to head to the 50th anniversary Star Trek Las Vegas convention. So why don't we talk a little bit about your involvement with the convention, with creation, in enhancing the attendees' experience? Sure. We do a tour a year. Uh, This year, of course, we're going to do our one-day tour. And what that is, is to, uh, we head off to the Valley of Fire and see all the great, geeky Star Trek goodness that's out there. Larry, can you give us a kind of a rundown of what we see? Sure. Something that we do do every year now is the Valley of Fire tour, which is, of course, where great Admiral Kirk met his match in the end of Generations, in Star Trek Generations, with Picard and, and the Malcolm McDowell's character out there. But they went out and shot 
two different times because they had to reshoot the ending. And uh, the great the great tour that we put together is it's a one day. We get up at we leave. We don't just get up. We leave at seven a.m. because it is August in the desert in Nevada. But we have these nice uh, comfy tour buses, tour vans. But we it's an hour out there, and we go out to the film site where all that bridge work was and all the dramatic action was filmed. And then one thing, the first year we did this, just last year, that was a shock to almost everybody that works in and out of Star Trek fans and the professional side and everybody. We didn't realize it was this little tiny secret that Nevada State Parks kept to themselves, apparently. The production company donated one of the bridges that they had built for the set out there, the location set, one of the bridges was donated intact to the park to use wherever they wanted to, and they have a, wa- a dry wash creek bed with a path that needed a new bridge back in the 90s, 94, 95. And, and this <laughs> – what I call the killer bridge has yes. been out there over this canyon pathway over this like about an 8, 10-foot um, you know, dry creek wash. And so last year when I was calling around and getting the, the you know, details for the tour end of it, one of the rangers said, oh, and are you guys going to go out to the – to the movie bridge. I go, what do you mean the movie bridge? And first thing I thought of was like, what, there's a captain's chair and consoles? What What do you mean there's a helm? <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 they gave us a bridge. And I'm like, I was like, what? And that was every person I talked to at CBS and <laughs> Rod Perry's, everybody, all the other major fans I knew, uh, people that, you know, that knew the, knew the Trek world, Trekland, I'd say, they have a bridge from generations that they're using on a path. And everybody would say, what? <laughs> It's like, how was this hidden for 20 years? How did we not know about this for 20 years? But we do. So now part of it, we take the tour out to the film site, but we also go over. And that was a huge hit last year. It was everybody's first time. In fact, we were still trying to make sure it even existed or that it was doable. And it's very close to one of the roadways. And everybody had just a blast taking pictures on it. After about the ninth person taking a picture, I had an idea and got up underneath the bridge and went, you know, like a Kirk look. Uh, It was fun, clunk. And uh, then that was a big hit, and everybody had to do that. We just had a ton of fun. We had the people on the regular tour, and then we had the one-day people. So we had a really good crowd out there. And this is all the day before. So the, the con's still opening on Thursday. The tour is on Wednesday. So a lot, so many people now come in early, and they stay late. You know, They want to come and do a little bit around Vegas anyway. One thing I'd like to kind of add to that is that when we get to the bridge, it is a very cool experience. Larry and I think we both know, mm-hmm. noted on this last time. You kind of walk up to it and, and you look at it and you go, is that it? And then when you look at it a little bit and you're like, oh my god, that is it. And Because it, it looks exactly the same. It's all kind of rusted out and there's that kind of reddish dirt all around it and sandy. and well, the, so the triangular it, it, like supports and rails and things. Yeah. yeah we, we came up on it endwise and I said, well, that could be it. And the minute I kind of got around and saw it more on a three-quarter view, I went, oh my god, that's, that's a killer bridge. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you look up in the sky and there's the nexus. That's right. <laughs> Well, I fine. We should Photoshop that. We should we should Photoshop that. Why did we Photoshop that? Well, then we can do that this year. We can have everybody doing the Tolly and Saran pose. You know, that would be awesome. You know, put that that up there. Yeah, his arms outstretched to the nexus. Oh, there you go. It it is a very cool thing. So right now, today is July twentieth. So there's not much time left before the convention, but I know several people are getting, like you've said, getting there early and kind of settling in. Is there still time to reserve a spot for this tour to the Valley of Fire? 
Yeah, I think we can fit a few people in. As a matter of fact, we got another one today, so we're, we are still taking reservations. So I think that we should be able to do it all the way up to the to the point. We'll just cut it off, let's just say, the Sunday prior. The tour price is uh, 199 USD plus taxes, 2786 or something like that, taxes tax-wise. But uh, yeah, it includes the lunch and the, the guides out there and the transportation and, and Larry, the, the big LN or Dr. Star Trek, as he likes to be called, apparently. And, um, yeah. Zero plaques. I've had people yelling at me for years, come up with a name, come up with a name. So I finally <laughs> did. Blame them. So for a little over $200, you wake up, you are taken in an air-conditioned bus out to the Valley of Fire, you're provided a narrated tour by none other than Larry Nemechek to then return back and then get ready for the con the next day. I mean, that sounds that sounds like a very memorable experience. I gotta say, well, it's a great kickoff. Plus, we should say that we do we have clips that we show in the vehicle. So, just in case it's not etched in your brain already, we do have in the vehicle. We're showing the clips of all the scenes out at Valley Fire. You can get kind of, you know, since you're not watching the story, maybe put an eyeball into looking at the mountainscape behind it and just because it is the 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 bottom line is what and what we do with the big tour also is that everything is some kind of a Star Trek film site or a film reference but at the same time they're also very cool man-made or natural you know tourist areas wonderful touring things and the Valley of Fire is just magnificent I mean you get that idea watching the movie I've got a lot of documentation and uh, we had it scoped out pretty well last year about what was what and where was where and we have photos of how the bridges were built on the side of the mountains that they used and uh, if you're going this year and you're going to be there early then take advantage of the tour to Valley of Fire with Geek Nation Tours for a really awesome experience visiting where Kirk died. So we know geeknationtours.com, so book now and plan early for the 50th anniversary. Larry, how can people follow you as, as, the, as the ultimate encyclopedia of Star Trek? Well, LarryNimichek.com, Larry Nimichek's Trekland on Facebook, and at Larry Nimichek on uh, Twitter. And all my all my stuff, the Con of Wrath documentary we're wrapping up this year, uh, the Trekland Trunk, my archival sales, the blog, uh, the videos, vid chats. Oh, Enterprise in Space, the nonprofit uh, student experiment space mission for five years from now that I'm spokesman for, and my new thing that's going to launch at Vegas. Sneak peek was just at Comic Con San Diego called Portal Forty Seven, and I'm just going to be enigmatic about that and let everybody be teased and find out about it in a couple of weeks. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you for taking the time to sit with us and, and keep us up to date on what's going on with Geek Nation Tours and how attendees of the convention can really get the most out of the experience. And again, to Geek Nation Tours, thank you for sponsoring Priority One Podcast this year at the Star Trek Las Vegas convention. We'll see you in a few weeks. Okay, bye-bye. We'll see you in a couple weeks. It's coming up fast. Terrace has a booth. We have our landing party, and I'll be all over the place. So, yes, see everybody in Vegas, baby. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. This week brings us very extensive patch notes. I highly encourage, as usual, everyone to check them out for yourselves and see what might be most relevant to your characters. Uh, however, a few highlights. Research and development materials are no longer listed when you are vendoring and recycling. They had a zero value, and it was quite annoying, I found, to have to scroll past pages of them to get to the actual items I wanted to sell. 
PvP resist and PvP damage mods are gone. Much rejoicing. Hurrah! <laughs> oh, I'm so happy. I got so many of those when I was crafting my thousands of... Well, best, best to not think on it. <laughs> I, I should mention, though, that they do say that anything that currently has a PvP res or PvP damage on it will still keep that mod. They're not disappearing or anything. It's just that they won't be on uh, newly crafted or upgraded items. That is correct. Uh, Bordicus has mentioned that they would like to do something with that in the future, but for right now, the only change is that those mods will no longer appear on freshly crafted items. In other mod news, the damage mod on weapons has been rebalanced and is now nearly the top mod. There, there are some different use cases, and at Mastodog has done quite an analysis on the STO Reddit wiki, which we'll include the link in the show notes. But basically, other than pen, most of the time, damage is going to be your best option. Anyway, this will be a great opportunity to get some of that fleet gear out of mothballs, and possibly for those who were clever, who I know there's a few folks out here who did this, stored up some damage times three weapons just in case this happened down the road but we'll see the talaxian trait should now function normally though currently only for talaxian captains there were many costume updates for those indulging in the one true end game of star trek online even more lag fixes leading to even more rejoicing (laughs) and the peasants cheered Several new additions to the Foundry, including Command, Pilot, and the recent Iconic ships. Not to mention Armadas, the previously announced changes to advanced queues, and this whole new fleet holding. Despite a bug discovered during stress testing on Tribble, the new weekly fleet buff projects can be slotted. During the extended downtime, they were able to fix it. Season 10.5 is finally upon us, and with it comes a new featured episode. This week sees the release of Broken Circle, in which we participate in an all-out assault on the Iconians. This episode features voiceovers from Aaron Eisenberg, Robert Duncan McNeil, and Jerry Ryan. The featured episode will run for four weeks this time. We couldn't play it before we recorded this episode due to extended holodeck downtime, but tune in to next week's Priority One podcast for a full review. There had been a lot of speculation from us and everyone else about what the new lockbox would be, and this week we finally got the details. There is a lot of information here, and there just isn't time to explain everything. So if you would like any more information on any of this, we'll leave a link to the blog post in the show notes for this episode at PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash PO231. So let's get to it. The new lockbox is called Year of Hell, after the Voyager storyline of the same name. So let's look at what you can get. First up is the Grand Prize Tier 6 Krenum Imperium Warship. According to the blog, it's slower and less maneuverable than many destroyers and escorts, but a heavy tactical emphasis and less squishiness in terms of hull and shields will make it appealing to many captains. It's also worth noting that it features a Lieutenant Tactical slash Intel seat and a Lieutenant Commander Universal slash Pilot seat, so there's a lot of flexibility in terms of boffs. You could theoretically have six science abilities or a whopping nine tactical abilities if you're so inclined. There's also the Timeline Analysis Sensor Grid Universal Console, which appears to lower enemies' defense, and Potentiality, a starship trait that increases your damage when you're not using boff abilities. It should also be noted that the Imperium Warship comes with a brand new bridge. That Potentiality is very interesting. 
I'm not quite sure what to make of it. I'm not sure if... I think we need to try it out, because I'm not sure that there are any times when I'm not using any buff abilities. So, A, the scale of what the damage is going to increase, I'd like to see. And also, I'd like to see if you can actually practically use it. Yeah, it definitely will be a finesse type of gameplay if it is something that turns out to be beneficial. It certainly drives away from the spacebar mashing style, which is not optimal anyway, but is sufficient for many forms of content and easy, at least. Next up is the Tier 6 Zal Heavy Cruiser. The boff layout is similar to the Imperium Warship, but favors engineering a bit more. It's got a Lieutenant Hybrid Science Intel seat and a Lieutenant Commander Hybrid Universal Command seat, so for engineering fans, you could slot up to seven engineering boff abilities. Other than that, it's a fairly standard cruiser layout. The temporal shielding matrix universal console has some control and damage resistance and slows your opponent's abilities. And then the invincible starship trait grants an immunity to damage and a boost to hull and shield heals, but only temporarily and only when your hull strength is very low. Players who equip the Universal Consoles from both the Imperium Warship and the Zal Heavy Cruiser will benefit from a two-piece set bonus that gives increased energy resistance and defense. See again with the Invincible trait, how brief is that? I don't think they gave us a window. Is it two seconds? Is it one second? Is it like the engineering Is it like the engineering R&D trait that is just instantaneous? Like maybe it'll stop the next hit? Going to require a little more research. Finally, we have the Tier 5 Nihydran Destroyer, which can be upgraded to Tier 5U. It's a relatively straightforward destroyer, so I suspect that most players who want this ship will do so for the looks. And while those who get it from the lockbox may be disappointed that it wasn't an Imperium warship, it nonetheless looks like a solid ship. I actually think it's kind of neat looking. I think it's kind of neat looking, I agree with that. Besides the ships, some other prizes from the lockbox are new space and ground traits and the Krenim Temporal Specialist Duty Officers, which we'll go into more next week. But it's not just the prizes that are new in this lockbox. There have been some pretty significant changes made behind the scenes that will affect what rewards you can get, which I'll just summarize. R&D mini packs have been removed as a prize, which means that all the other prizes are slightly more likely to drop. They've added some new large boosts, including fleet credit and bonus mark pools. These are even larger than the previously existing large pools. Weapons packs will now give players a choice of cannons or beams, and they will not have ground weapons in this particular lockbox. Finally, they've tweaked the drop rates of higher tier prizes so that they appear slightly more frequently. So that brings us to this week's community question. Now that we have details on the new lockbox, what do you think? of the prizes, of the new odds. Will this tempt you? There was one other little nugget of information in the blog post that I absolutely cannot pass over. Dogs have finally come to Star Trek Online. Beagle vanity pets are now obtainable from the low buy store. I personally won't be giving up my pussycat anytime soon, but I know a lot of players have been waiting for them. I did think it was kind of cute. Somebody, I think they tweeted out, you know, the Labrador Retriever is the most popular dog breed in America. When will they be included instead of beagles? Uh, and I just, I thought that was very 
Trek fan. <laughs> I'm definitely not disparaging this person at all. I, I got a good laugh out of it. Yeah. Um, they just weren't aware of uh, Porthos, Captain uh, Archer's Beagle. Yep. Also referenced in JJ Trek, Admiral Archer's prize beagle. But I like that appeal to the, the, stati- the statistical distribution of dog breeds. Just tickled my fancy. Finally, this week also sees the release of a ship that's likely to catch the attention of a certain group of diehard fans, a Tier 6 Excelsior variant called the Resolute Advanced Heavy Cruiser. You may notice some similarities in its design to that of the Command Battle Cruisers. Ian Richards, aka Jam Jams, tweeted, Fun fact, Fed Command Cruisers used the Excelsior as part of the inspiration, hence the Resolute's similarities. We'll dive into a more detailed analysis of this new ship next week, and feel free to include your own thoughts on it if you write in to answer this episode's community question. Again this week, in an effort to bring you some of the news and comments from PWE and Cryptic that aren't officially announced in the blogs, here's the latest comments pulled from the forums and the Twitterverse. Jeremy Bordicus Randall tweeted, For those of you concerned with having unfinished Nandy projects, Lobby packages of vouchers will remain available for two more weeks. Which I think is a, a really good compromise to a complaint that a lot of people had, that um, if you just didn't finish your project, they would just be gone. So Yeah, a little grace period is good. Yeah, especially with all the uh, unexpected downtime. I think it's a, it's, it's a, it sweetens the deal. Ian Richards at STO Jam Gems tweeted... Seems I've reached the 100 mark for the number of ships slash vessels I've built slash updated for Stowe some time back. Crazy. Yeah, he's been around for a long time. Yeah. That's a lot of ships. I like many of his designs. When I find out that it's a Jam Jam ship, I am usually unsurprised because my taste seems to run towards a lot of the things that he makes. Although now with Thomas on the team too and the general... A high caliber of recent ship releases. It's uh, trickier to pick out who's who. Zeronius Rex tweeted, Just got out of an awesome brainstorm with Bordicus and the other guys. My idea for a new trait? Dead weight. It was not popular. But it would be used a lot. Sorry, Zero. <laughs> Finally, thanks to everyone who entered our swimsuit calendar competition. You guys sent in some seriously awesome screenshots, and now we've got the hard job of deciding the winners. Keep your fingers crossed, and we'll announce the winners in episode 233 on the 3rd of August. That wraps up Star Trek Online news this week. Next up is the final part of our recent interview with Star Trek Online's lead designer, Al, Captain Gecko Rivera. Security clearance level 3 or above is required to access files. This is Captain Benjamin Sisko. Authorization, Sisko Alpha 1 Alpha. Logs accessed. Well, Admirals, once again this week, we have Al Captain Gecko Rivera, lead designer for Star Trek Online. In parts 1 and 2, we talked about the new Armada system, the new Krenum fleet holding, and the new gear that has come out with season 10.5. For this final part of the interview, we want to address some things that are being talked about by the player base, for example, elite Borg STFs. This is something that players have been talking about for a while. Do you have any plans to release them anytime soon? And what kind of an ETA can we expect? 
Well, the first thing we had to do was we made changes to the advanced cues, which I know you weren't too much of a fan of, Cam, but we wanted to fix that and get that into a place that we were happy with. There's a there's another stage to that update that we want to do, and then a third piece to that puzzle is turning most of the you know the most of the more popular cues into giving having more elite versions of cues. We had hoped to launch with more of them when we released the released the first elite cues, but we do have more on the way. We basically have three content designers right now that actively work on content. We're down ahead on content and so updating cues is less featured episodes or battle zones or whatever that are coming out. So it's always a choice. We can, um, I think we've a good uh, robust amount of content in the game. So we can probably, you know, I'm trying to spend a little bit more time on cues uh, in the near future. I think the next thing that we want to do is we're looking at an idea of trying to concentrate the player base. And what I mean by that is we've got a lot more cues out there than what people play. And so there's a choice overload of what cues there. And people will naturally just funnel to the ones that are easiest and give the best rewards. They'll just start, they'll start noticing that. But we have some great cues out there that are just underplayed. And so we want to incentivize people to play that. So we've talked about ideas like having, you know, like I said, giving multi, giving large bonuses for certain kinds of cues for weekend events. It's like everyone, you know, triple marks if you go and play uh, um, Salt Vampire queue uh, or something Mind like trap. that. Mind trap, right? Um, we've also talked about retiring some ones that are just really antiquated and maybe not being used all that much at all and just need a complete overhaul, or just maybe we just just get rid of them because they're just not needed anymore. You mentioned Gorn Minefield in that, and that I'm, I'm, I find that sad because that's one of my favorite cues. I think the problem with that one is just it's just under rewarding. It, it's a lot of a lot of cues just need to have their rewards improved, right? They just need yeah. to be, or just or they might need a quick polish. When we get to them, we basically want to see, you know, what is it is wrong? Why is someone not playing a cue? Do we just need to improve the rewards? Do people playing it then? Is it is it just antiquated, or is, it, is there something quick that we can do, or is it just going to need too much an overhaul that we just don't need anymore? I mean, well, I don't want to make any commitment that we want to delete any one particular cue, but if it's too hard to fix, then it's probably worth just, just ditching and then maybe and then replacing it with something a, a little better. But if it's a matter of just improving the rewards, that's that's fine too. And and we might do that by saying, let's improve the rewards and then let's put Gorn Minefield on triple triple rewards for the next weekend and see if we can get people to come check it out again. And then maybe that will revitalize it. Yeah, so there's those are we're looking at different strategies and that's that's probably more on our plate more right now than adding more elite cues. After we get that, those kind of um, the get level of overhaul, then we want to add not just elite versions of the bo- of the board cues, but some of a lot of the more popular cues, getting elite versions of them all. One of the things we talked about doing is just putting the cues on rotation. Talk about here again as a uh, as just simply as a brainstorm idea, the idea that let's just say we have what 50 cues, and so at any given time, instead we might have instead let's say there's only a dozen cues available as long as there is a ground and space version of every mark and every crafting item available every material very rare material and then those are only available for a week and then the next week we put in a different rotation the next week we put a different rotation so that way people have to concentrate more onto the cues that are there that might make some people sad because they can't play the ones they want but 
the goal of that is also to improve the rewards for the ones that are underperforming. So we're trying, we're, we're, we're brainstorming different, different ideas. I just think in general right now we have, we have too many queues. And so when you have too many, have a choice overload, people just are just going to do certain things and they're missing out on other opportunities. And other players who really want to play those queues can't get the people in them because everyone's at the other one. So we want yeah. to give everyone an opportunity to check out everything. That'll also give us more data, you know, how something is performing. I mean, we have some queues out there where, like, in the course of a month, like seven people played it in basic mode. There were seven, well not seven people, seven, seven times it got hit that it played in basic mode, but everyone's only, everyone's playing in advance. And so, well, there's something wrong there. Um, and so what's, and so we need, we need more information and, uh, we need to, we need to look at that. And so we, we, so we, you know, we have all the queue data, but there's some, some queues that are just, they have no data on because no one's playing them. So maybe they're just bad. And so maybe we just get rid of them. Maybe, maybe they just under, they just have, or maybe they just have poor rewards. Well, let, let me give you an example here. Um, just going back to Gorn Minefield. Before, you used to be able to play it, and if you got lucky, you got first place. Well, not lucky. If you were good and you got first place, you can win. You can get items that are worth anywhere from 500,000, a million, all the way up to 25 million BC. Now, if you play it, uh, if you get super, super lucky and you get the first place and you, and you win the, the grand prize item, which would be like a, a tactical console, you might might be able to get one million out of it. So there's that. Um, another example would be... Well, that, that certainly those cues are really old. That's before we ever had marks or anything. So there was a very different system back then, right? Back then. As far as the placement system. Okay, well, the, the another example would be no win scenario as it was before where you mm -hmm. had the three difficulties normal advanced and elite now the easy or the normal could be done with a certain group could be could do it in five minutes the same group you take them and you drop them into advanced and it would take them half an hour to do take the same group again drop it into elite and it would take them an hour to finish but the thing is at the end the rewards were nearly identical you get the same amount of marks playing elite as you would playing advanced as you would playing normal and the only difference would be the R&D box and a little bit extra dilithium here and there. So so if you look at the data for no win scenario what the example that you're saying doesn't tell the whole story. If you take one group of players and you put them into basic they finish it in five minutes and if you put that same group of people and put them in advanced and they take you know whatever 20 minutes and then the same group you put them to elite and it takes them an hour. But that's not the average of what happens, because what happens is is that that group of people will tend to go to a particular will tend to go to a particular difficulty and stay in that difficulty, the one that they are efficient at. And then what you happen is that the average playtime for no win scenario, the average playtime by far was nine minutes, regardless of the difficulty, whether it was played in basic, advanced, or elite. No win scenario finished on average in nine minutes. And that is probably because people who were, re you know, the elite players who could do it would go into elites and they could do it in nine minutes. They weren't bothering with the basic or advanced. And the people who were average players didn't, they, too hard in elite, so they just stayed in their advanced or their basic difficulty. So people always finish it in nine minutes. And so the, the rewards are, are, you know, are, are rewarding based on the time it takes to play. And so the whole no one scenario was, became, such a mess on how to balance the rewards for because the way it was designed that as we started to overhaul it and tune it 
we were far more concerned that players were going to perceive it as just a major nerf in order to get it in line because the players that were successful at it were getting far over rewarded and were able to I mean frankly it was it was a no-win scenario but people were winning it all the time now as people adapted so we just needed to just overhaul that so we decided to just take it offline for now until we could overhaul it and rebalance the rewards and rebalance this and uh, rebalance the system I think there were a lot of mistakes made in the way a lot of the a lot of the rewards were balanced for instance philosophically you could balance a, a queue based on if a queue has a set amount of time to play, that's usually not too hard to balance. But let's just say, in the case of, say, a no-win scenario, should you balance it based on average playtime? Take a snapshot. Well, as I told you before, that doesn't tell you the whole story, right? Because everyone's finishing in nine minutes, but should the should the elite one give you the same amount of rewards? Because generally we give rewards at like based on time play. It's time currency, but it's difficulty currency is a little more subjective because that's different for it. That, that level of difficulty is different for everybody. But then if we increase the rewards and say we give double rewards for advanced and then triple rewards for elite, but they're putting the same time in, oops, that kind of breaks the idea of a time currency. So I think it was being balanced as a time currency, which, which is why you were seeing what you said that people were getting about the same amount of rewards. But it's it's because it was all getting everyone was getting rewarded as though they put nine minutes into it, I'm sorry. which I think was incorrect, which wasn't fair. Yeah. I don't think it was fair. I guarantee so. you, Al. I'm part of that group. We we tried playing advanced. We tried playing elite, and there was no way we were doing advanced and elite in nine minutes. It was just. It's impossible. It's just way, way too difficult. Well, it's not impossible because we have data to prove that that is that that was that was the average, but it wasn't it, at the time uh, that we were pulling the data. But doing... I couldn't do it. I I couldn't do it. But um, I don't know who was. But that was it, it was somewhere. You know, there there were there were times in between like nine and eleven minutes in there. That, so that was odd. So we had a yeah, we had a really bad. We had it. So anyway. But my point is, is that no one scenario was a mess as far as balance uh, and, and reward balance. So it was not one that we think that we could have fixed in the state that it was without causing a lot of controversy. And then at the end, we have a, we have cues. I won't say which that are giving out like if you know how to do it, like 250 marks right now, and it's like that's way overperforming. And and you could do it in four minutes. And so we have a problem queue out there right now that's probably going to be, it's going to be, that has been adjusted with this next, for season 10.5. So we have some anomalies out there. So, you know, we have a constant, you know, for the most, for, I think every queue got improved for advanced difficulty for, for 10.5, with the exception of two queues that were doing something stupid like that. They were giving out like 250, 250 marks in advance for four, four to six minutes of play. It's not easy. We also spent a lot of time standardizing a lot of the rewards because a lot of the rewards were not very standardized. So that also is is coming out with 10.5 with the queue, with the queue improvements. Well, Al, I'm just uh, about the advanced queues, I have to tell yeah. you, I got told off the other day. I was playing, <laughs> I was playing Azure Nebula Advanced yeah. and there's a couple members on the on the team that were goofing off and they didn't care about the optionals and we failed the optionals and I got a little bit miffed I, I, you know I might be a little bit temperamental in these situations and you know and they told me off and they basically said you know who plays advanced for marks anymore this is just for farming was it Argonite so it's 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 already happening what I talked about it's already there so it, this is 
this might be something you want, might want to look at in the future, and perhaps I don't know, maybe lock some of these elite marks behind the optionals themselves, so people can't just go into advanced and goof off and get the rewards anyways. You want to suggest locking the okay? That's that's interesting. Locking the uh, rare materials. Or the or the which one the rare materials or the elite marks Bo- either or both, or both you know because you have the, multiple optionals you mm-hmm. have one or two optionals so if you get the yeah. first optional you get the mm-hmm. elite mark you get the second optional you get the the yeah. rare material whatever so just to prevent sure. people from farming these and just going on goofing off and yeah I could I could I could see that I would strongly consider that the main thing that we were trying to address was simply the fact that. You could go into a queue, into an advanced queue, and end up with a pug, and spend a lot of time on it, and someone misses the optional objectives, and you get nothing out of it. And I think that was a uh, that was a bad show, and that was basically discouraging people from even trying advanced queues. And we want to get more people to try advanced queues, and not have it being intimidating. It's too difficult. The queues would fail, and you wouldn't even know why. And so we wanted to make it more accessible to average players. But I hear what you're saying, and I think that's uh, we, what we didn't. What we also wanted to do is make sure that you could get. You w- we wouldn't nerf the rewards. So whatever you could earn before, you could earn still in advance if you do the optionals that you had to before. But if you didn't make those optionals, you could still get at least the basic rewards. But you still have to. But you're still taking a chance because you're playing. Uh, you're playing at higher difficulty, so you're probably going to spend more time in it. But basically, you have higher opportunity. So I could see putting the uh, putting the elite marks in the optional, but you know the other thing too was you know a lot of people were really um, were gated from the elite marks and and getting access to elite marks. I mean there's there's a lot of gear in there that people need to, in order to advance even further. And if it's and it was kind of a um, chicken the egg problem. If you you needed the you needed the advanced the uh, elite marks to get the good gear so you could participate in the advanced queues, but you couldn't participate in advanced queues until you got the marks. And so it was a chicken the egg problem. So we want people to be able to get to get the gear so that way they could participate in this and then eventually into the into the elite queues. But I don't have a problem with considering gating those behind there. But um, I'll look into see how how easy or difficult that is or what the risks is. I'd like to talk with that with the team. Okay, well, thanks, Al. I think you've given us a lot of information. But just a, just very quick-fire questions for you. Um, this one was asked by our very own Cookie Cupcakes. Please, can we have a tab for pets in the inventory? Um, okay. <laughs> Thank you. No, uh, uh, first, folks. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's it was uh, it's one of those pet projects. Not to be pardon the pun to get a pet tab in, in the game it may or may not be a good idea simply from a um, from a database performance standpoint because they are expensive items and there's a reason why we have inventory inventory limits for instance the crafting material inventory is basically limitless that's because there aren't any powers or items really associated with those crafting materials those, those the data is very very light but a but a pet is an item that activates a power to some, that summons an entity, and it's actually a pretty—it's a much heavier piece of data. And so, having a pet inventory is something that I want because, you know, for the same reasons that players want—they just want to keep buying pets and keep them all. 
and and I want that too. I've got a whole bunch of cats and space dogs and and spiders and everything of every color, and I can't keep them all in my inventory. And I want to be able to keep them all in my inventory. Um, so I want a separate inventory just as much as you do, uh, Cookie. But it's really up to the engineers if they think they can afford it. So. It comes up every so often uh, in meetings, and so it's a fine reminder. I'll bring it up again and see if I can get someone to make that happen. But I can't. I can't promise it. It's out of. It's out of my hands. But I can. But I can nag the right people. Oh, that would be really great. I think uh, Cookie and all of us would really appreciate that. So thank you. All right. Um, and just one final question from me. Uh, do you? You might not know the answer to this actually, but do you know when we can expect the Dev Tracker to be back up and running? I've absolutely no idea. You'll have to ask Laugh okay. and Trending about that. That is that's a perfect right. world thing, more than a cryptic thing. Oh, I was hoping that you knew the magic answer. No, I don't. No, it's a. The only thing I know about is is the design stuff, and you know, Perfect World is about twenty miles away from uh, Cryptic, and that's where that's where Laughing Trendy uh, Morgan is is based up there with the marketing team, and and, and they handle all the community related stuff up there so okay um, we'll I'm bother usually, her for that then yeah you can bother them about about that and the forums yeah. and and all that kind of goodness that's got nothing to do with with what we do down here did you have any questions about the story i was surprised you guys had no uh, no story questions or anything to chat to chat about i absolutely love the story so far who are who is the other <laughs> i i'm really what i'm enjoying most about this is watching people try to um try to put Try to speculate and put things together and, and anticipate what's what's where the story is going. So, um, so you know, I can't answer that question. Yeah, but I it's know. been but it's been fun. Uh, it's been fun watching people squirm and and and, and speculate and, and argue uh-huh. one way or the other about what's where things are going. Um, I do have a question about that actually, because yeah. who writes the stories? Is it the same team that sort of? been developing the stories as we go along or you know have has this been a specially commissioned thing or because it really feels different now this particular story arc than it has maybe in previous story arcs well i'll um it depends on who you're asking if you're asking if you're asking the lead designer i'll give you one answer if you're asking al i'll give you a different answer the truth of the matter is that it all is that it's a very collaborative effort and so at different levels so a lot of the story comes from me as far as where I want to take the story. A lot of the story is dictated by things that I talked about before as far as strategic elements and how we, how the story needs to be structured as far as cadence of when we need to release things, how many, how many episodes, how is it going to tie into a winter event or an anniversary event, and that will, you know, how it's going to tie into 2016. That dictates a lot of where it needs to go. Generally what happens is that myself, and Steven Ricosa and uh, the lead content designer will will sit in a room and we'll brainstorm what we can do. And I uh, I know the most about of the IP out of that group. And I so most of the high level story comes out of the, out of those meetings. And it to a lot of it comes from me. From those meetings, then Christine, our lead writer, comes involved, and then we kind of we start then structuring it into at a level of what what other elements do we need to bring in into this at this point but the story itself the structure like the main bullet points will mostly comes from me and that is what okay we're going to have 
like say in House of Peg, we want to tell a, a story from a Klingon side. We want to injure an Iconian to cause some anger on the Iconian side, but we don't want we don't want to kill him. We don't want the player to be going pew pew with with an Iconian. Iconians are too important. Can we kill? We want to have somebody really important die. There has to be a huge, huge cost involved in in kill in, in injuring an Iconian. Uh, a huge cost to the fleet and a huge personal loss. Can who can we kill? And then I call CBS. Can I kill Kalis? And CBS says, Yeah, <laughs> you can kill Kalis. And says, so, Okay, we're going to kill Kalis in this episode. We're going to have a huge loss to the fleet. What actor we want to bring involved in this? Okay, we can get we can get Robert O'Neill. We'll have we'll have Tom Paris be the pilot leading you up onto this, and we'll want this major cutscene. And how is the player going to? get involved, you know, fighting uh, an Iconian. He says, no, we don't want them fighting an Iconian in this part of the story. And so then I take that, and then Christine then kind of makes a little bit of a framework in the story and brings in the characters on who might be involved. Then that is given to a content designer, and then the content designer builds the gameplay around that. Okay, and this is okay, this is how it's going to be. You're going to start off in space, on the Krenim, the facility, and then you're going to go assault the... The, you know, assault the sphere, and then you'll go inside the sphere, and you go in the ground, and then you'll you'll have to hit the omega generators, and the omega generators will do this. Outside of that, also then from myself will come the we need to have things give hints to the next episode. Hence, when you download the data recorder, you find out stuff about the Krenum, which which is a hint for the next episode. So every episode has to have something in it that's going to lead you into the next episode. And so that information has to get to the content designers, and he has to put that in there as well. Then at that point, then Christine writes all the dialogue and fleshes out the characters and deciding which characters are going to be in there. Um, and she writes all the text involved and tells and writes it that way and tells that story that way. But the framework comes from largely myself and working with the other leads. And then the designers will pitch what they want to do, and then I, I and the other leads will approve if that is the right way that the gameplay should happen and that's been the structure since about legacy of romulus which is about the time when our stories really started you know improving when we you know had a came up with a really solid you know uh, what would you call it process on how we're going to build stories from now on and so that's that's pretty much so everybody has their part in telling that story i am not a writer i'm a terrible writer right i don't know how to as far as you know, written skills, uh, much more math-oriented and math and, and analytical-oriented. But I have a vast knowledge of the IP, and I have a really good uh, being at the company as long as I have really understand the business and where, and where things have to happen and how things have to take place. Um, and, of course, I, you know, have a vast knowledge of Star Trek Online itself. So I generally lead... I, I guess you would call it writing the story, but not the writer. I don't know what the right way, or is it the screenplay? I don't know if you what the right what the right analog would be. But the gameplay comes is pitched from the, you know how the story how the story is told is the designer the, the content designers and they pitch that and we approve that and then what is said in the text and the characters is all. Is, is mostly Christine with the with the content designers working with the content designers themselves, and then Charles, a content designer, and myself are then in charge of overviewing and managing, and I guess you would call it like if you were if it was a movie directing the missions to make sure that they are hitting the story beats and telling the stories that we had set forth from the beginning. 
So. Well, you've been getting a lot of really good feedback, especially in the last couple of episodes. That must be great to see. Well, like you said before, is watching people speculate on what's going to happen next and really getting engaged and involved with the story and eager to see what happens. Yeah, we've been seeing, you know, there, there's, I, I would say, like, one in ten are getting, you know, are reasonably close of the speculations we see out there. So mm. uh, it's kind of fun to see, oh, yeah, look, that person kind of got it, you know? Like, yeah. Ricosa is on Reddit a lot, and he says, look, this is like, it looks like someone got close. Mm. Um, and that's, that's, always, that's always fun to see. But it's also yeah. all fun to see all the ones that are just completely off the mark. Oh um, yeah, I can't. I, well, I can't wait to find out what is going to happen next. I have to say, I can't wait. It's just a couple of weeks away, a week or two away. I know. So let's take a step or two backwards to what we were talking about before about the cues. On a related note, the elite accolades that were available from before Delta Rising's elite cues are a source of consternation for a lot of players. Um, are there plans to unlock these accolades from the non-existent elite cues and perhaps? tie them in with advanced I don't really understand the question I don't know I certainly haven't talked about it so um, so okay let me just let me go in depth about it there are yeah. certain elite accolades that you are required to have to unlock certain costume abilities like the uh, the type 3 or type 4 Mako honor guard right those, those yeah. sort of things so those uh -huh. were tied to the elite choose from before the rising so um, that both the ground and the space cues, you have to get a certain amount of uh, accolades, of elite accolades to unlock those. But since these cues no longer exist, they are, it's no longer possible to mm. get those accolades, so people can't unlock those costume options anymore. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I know what you're talking about. Um, I would say that we probably will say that we dropped the ball on that. So I'm going to make myself a note about that, and we will get on that and fix that. I don't think we'll fix that by adding a queue, but we can give you other ways to unlock those costumes. Perfect. So so that won't be that should be no fuss to take care of. Okay, next question. Alright. You got it. See this is how we get things done around here. Haha, <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> so moving on, next question. Will there be a new space battle zone? Perhaps the Herald Sphere? Or perhaps upgrading the existing space battle zones to level sixty? There will be a new space battle zone. And is this going to be 10.5 or just some point? It won't be 10.5, no. It's going to be in the future. All right, that's, that's uh, perfect. Yeah, in, in the very near future, after 10.5, there will, there will be a new space battle zone. As a matter of fact, it's being worked on Monday. Ooh. Monday we start. All right, so moving on, I'm going to talk about... That, does, that really gives you no indication about when it will happen, but... No, as long as it's going to but, happen. But, you, but it's actually be an interesting exercise for the community, seeing that we will actually start on Monday. We will start with paper design on Monday on the new Space Battle Zone, and it's already scheduled to be worked on, and then you can see how long it takes to get one of those into your hands. All right, so this is probably going to be part two or part three of the interview. We're going long enough, so people, it started last Monday... I just want to talk about some of the ships now. Um, when Delta Rising was released, we got three science ships, and they were only for the Federation characters. Are we going to be seeing any Tier 6 science ships for either the Romulans, the Klingons, or perhaps factionless ships? Part two of that, um, perhaps you can make a Tier 6 version of the Vesta and make it a three-pack for all the factions. 
Well, I wouldn't give the Vesta to all the factions, but uh, getting a Tier 6 Vesta is uh, uh, highly probable that you'll be getting a Tier 6 uh, Vesta. Well, I wouldn't say give it to the other factions, so you'd have the Vesta for the Feds, and then there would be... Right, and an equivalent on the other sides, right? Yeah, I understand. We will eventually get Tier 6 science vessels to the uh, to both Romulans and Klingons. The bottom line is is that they're not that popular. They don't sell very well. And I, I know it's not the people who want them what they want to hear, but the longer that they want them, the more popular they become in a strange way, right? So, you know, science vessels on the Klingon side are the absolute least popular ships that we have in the game. And it doesn't mean that we don't want to make more of them. It just means strictly from a... From a business and, and scheduling perspective, you know, we should we invest 15 days of art time and 12 days of systems time and then 5 to 10 days of effects time to release a ship that's going to sell, you know, tens of thousands of or dozens of. I mean, that's that's what we're talking about well, business-wise. That's understandable. And that's, but, um... Right, and so that's, that's, where, that's where it comes down to. And so... And for whatever reason, Klingons, the majority of Klingons don't, aren't interested in science vessels. And so I don't think that we shouldn't make them because of that. I think that we have to find less expensive ways to make those available for those players. And so that might mean less unique art for that, for such ship. Right? In other words, instead of building something completely unique, maybe we can take an existing vessel and modify it easily. Uh, maybe that might even mean something like you said, like making a Vesta three pack and making a tier six Vesta, and then whatever ship ends up on the on the on the Romulan side and Klingon side, um, we can it will basically share a lot of the same data that's on the Fed side, and so we can make them a little a little less expensive that way. I do want to get those there. I don't I don't want to leave that gap there. We've even joked about making Kickstarters for them. <laughs> um, just, so so should we make a Kickstarter to see them, and then if they you know if we reach the goal, then we'll make the ship, and if we don't, then well, there you go. We can't. It's just we can't. It's just not. It's just not a good return on the investment. I mean, Klingon ships in general already sell significantly less than than Fed ships, and so when we make them, we're generally making them in bundles like this, and so it's a better way for us to to justify the cost of making them than to just make just a straight up Klingon ship or Romulan ship to go straight to the store. As far as uh, cross faction and uh, you know, like a lockbox or alien ship, I think that. You'll probably more likely see that as a low buy ship than anything else, a ship available in the low buy store, because um, lockbox sales are a large source of revenue for us, and it's unlikely that we would that we would put a pure science vessel into a lot into a lockbox ship simply because the demand for that would go down significantly, oh. and we just and but but putting it in the low buy store. Doesn't really. It's only. It's only a secondary kind of way of generating revenue for us, and so it wouldn't affect lo lockbox sales. So if we were to put one, it's more likely to appear in the low buy store than it would be in directly in the lockbox. So which are the pri two primary ways that players get a hold of cross faction ships. The other word, of course, being an event. We could, for instance, say make a Breen science vessel maybe for for the winter event for next winter. Um, yeah. So I think when we do them, kind of like the Dyson Destroyer that we did, that even though it's a science vessel, you probably have to add a little more kick to it, a little, a little more, a little non-traditional science vessel. I would consider both the uh, 
Vesta, the Vesta. Vesta, Vesta and the um, Dyson Destroyer were the two of those that are a little more popular than just plain straight up science vessels. They're also a lot more powerful. Perhaps yeah. we could do it that way, but eventually they'll come, but they will always be few and far between. Okay, because, well, the, for factionless science ships, Tier 6, it's been basically a drought. We've had absolutely none of those since yeah. since the Tier 6 was introduced. And I get what you're saying. Um, probably as a Lobby ship, I believe the, the Palisade was a Lobby ship. I'm, I can't quite remember. And was Palisade? I don't remember. If, uh, pro- uh, was the Palisade Lobby? Probably. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think the the bastion was the well I, I don't even remember anymore i'd have to double check it but um as for like lockbox ships wasn't the wells a lockbox ship and that's an extremely yes. popular uh, yes but, ship. but 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 the wells had the backing of a strong ip reference that's correct right? so you know ships don't always sell because of stats ships ships sell because of a confluence of stats arts and ip recognition they just do. Our most popular ship in the game, still by far, is the Galaxy class ship. That is Galaxy the one that sells. Galaxy X. No, the straight up Galaxy. Um, and now uh, is the most is uh, and now the uh, if you if you consider, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll the last time I checked that data was was before we introduced the tier six version of the Galaxy. But up until then, the the one that sold the most was ever has been the Galaxy. It's not the most powerful ship. But is the most recognizable ship as as for most players in the game. Most players come to the game and they're not they're not necessarily they're not mid maxers. They love Star Trek. They're gonna check it out. It's like oh my gosh, it's the galaxy. I gotta have that ship. Right? Everyone wants to play Picard. Yes, and so so and and we always do better with ships that are far more rooted in the IP than things that we extrapolate or things that are more obscure. Now we're getting we've. There are very few ships left in the IP that aren't that aren't obscure, right? I mean, we've 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 hit them all at this point. So we're getting more and more obscure ships, and so it's uh, they're scarier and scarier. The Wells class was a was you know it was only on screen for a short amount of time, but it was a big deal in those instances that it was on in Voyager, and it was it was beautiful and unique, and it's established canon. This is this ship, and getting that was a big deal. Um, and as opposed to, you know, if we're going to make a, uh, um, you know, invent a Herogen ship that you've never seen before or invent a Breen ship that you've never seen before, you're going to have to rely more on the stats and on the performance of the art itself to, to, sell, to drive that more so than the IP recognition of it. There's a lot of things that make a ship popular and it's not... Uh, and it's got nothing. It's, it's not. It's not nothing to do. But it has. It's not always to do with whether or not it performs well. Right? Okay. If it statistically performs well, trying to hit that IP sweet spot is really, really important uh, in making a, a, a successful ship. So the Wells, plus you know, it was a good ship. It still is a good ship. The uh, and along with it, the Mobius and the Klingon and, and Romulan version. Right. I wanted to ask you about the Romulan versions. Did the Romulans forget how to cloak in the future? 
the, the Romulus forget? <laughs> does, the, does the does the Romulan the Romulan Wells doesn't have cloaking device? It, I can't it, it does not. It, it doesn't does have not. a singularity core, and it doesn't have a cloak, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't recall. Is the Klingons cloak? Klingon should cloak, right? I may or may not. I'm not know. sure. I don't play Klingons. I'm I'm strictly Federation character. Yeah. And I don't even I don't even remember if they if they if they do or don't or why they wouldn't. It's been too long since since I've looked at those. I've actually recently started to dust off my Wells because I haven't touched it since since it first came out. I want to play it again. Well, so yeah, we don't we don't we don't make them that often because they're from a business point of view for a lockbox. It's scary to put one in there when you look at the sales. So yeah. when we do, we have to make sure, you know what, we're sure we can knock this out of the park because we're hitting all three points, you know, art, design, and IP are really resonating. Mm-hmm. And we'll know that this will do really well. And so it's, it's hard for something as important as a lockbox. Lockboxes are very important to the revenue of Star Trek Online. But that doesn't mean that we can't do that for a, for a Klingon ship or a Romulan ship, but most likely they're going to see it in a bundle because it's, it's less expensive for us to develop because we don't have to develop because we can just put the same console on it for all three factions or, or the same traits or the same stats for that matter. So we don't have to do as triple doing a bundle time-wise is much cheaper for design, not for art, but for design, design. to make. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. So um, just a couple more questions and we can just wrap it up. Um, I want to talk about a little bit of faction parody because I have I might have a little anti-Romulan bias just a little bit. Oh no! Um, I love Romulans. Romulans have a massive. They have massive advantages over Federation and Klingon players. Their uh, ships. Their their disadvantages that they have are slowly being removed. So, for example, they used to have problems with power. They used to have less power, but now that there's the Astica trait supremacy, that's gone. And there's other, other examples of that. Um, what are your thoughts on bringing Feds and Klingons to be on par with the Romulans, of course, without nerfing and upsetting the Romulan captains? We're not going to nerf the Romulans. It's just, that's just, it's not going to happen. The bottom line is, is that we did the same thing at launch. When we launched Star Trek Online, Klingon ships were, were just, for the most part, actually better than Federation ships. I mean, the fact that a Klingon ship could cloak even the battle cruisers, even if it didn't have battle croak, they could cloak and could use cannons and had better turn rates. Klingon ships were just better than, I mean, the original ships, right? Than, than Federation ships. Right. They just slightly, they had a slight advantage. You know, we were okay with that. And we did the same thing when we released the Romulans. We made these ships, made them a little bit better. And the bottom line is we did that because we wanted to make it enticing for people to play. When we launched, we knew that Federation would be more popular than Klingons, and so we wanted people to say, hey, you know, if I play that, I'm going to get this really cool ship that's going to be really cool and fun to play. And so maybe that will entice people to try that when they see some people cloaking and doing things that they can't do. And so the same thing for the Romulans. We put a whole expansion around the Romulans. There was nothing effectively available for existing players for for Klingons or Federation. We wanted everyone to check out, you know, to check out the Romulan content. So we gave them really good ships that was you know we tried to do that within the realms of balance in you know nerfing their power levels and as a you know in, in in some form so so that that's why that happened i don't think that we're planning on and talked about adjusting that in any way it certainly wouldn't nerf the romulans the majority of players still play federation by far um i think there's something like 16 percent klingon 16 percent romulans and then the rest is all federation and of those romulans 16% of those Romans are on the Klingon side. 
or, or 20% of those Romulans are on the Klingon side, so 80% of the Romulans are also Federation. That's, uh, it's, that's, there's nothing we can ever do to change that ratio. Um, it was, when we first launched Vegas and Romulans, a lot more people were playing Romulans, but it's, but it's much more balanced out at this point. Well, I don't think we're going to add more power to, to the Federation side. There's, there's, uh, I don't think that they're particularly lacking in anything, but sometimes we just give a little more advantage to the other factions just to incentivize people for checking them out. So, all right, we've talked about a lot of different things, and, uh, with our guest here, Al Captain Gecko Rivera, the lead designer of Star Trek Online. And this is probably going to be split up into uh, a couple of different episodes, maybe even three episodes. We had a lot to talk about. I hope you guys uh, enjoyed the interview, and I hope you guys picked up some useful information. Thank you very much, Al, for coming on the show and uh, discussing all these things and putting up with me and Kenna and the rest of us. No, it's a it's a real pleasure. I I hope to be back real soon, and uh, we'll uh, we'll maybe maybe after it's ten five is out, so we talk more about uh, about you, what, how you guys feel about the episode and the uh, and the Armada system. And uh, anytime you guys want me to come on just to chat about stuff, uh, maybe spend spend some time specifically talking about theory crafting and torpedoes and all that sort of stuff, I'd be happy to to chat with you. Or or maybe you want to bring Phil on board, and he can. Uh, Maybe uh, Phil or Jeremy, we can uh, talk with him as well. So, so thanks for having me. That's perfect. It's always good to be. It's always good to be here. All right, thank you very much, Al, and I'll talk to you soon, hopefully. Thanks for having me. That concludes our interview with Al Captain Gecko Rivera, lead designer for Star Trek Online. Now let's open hailing frequencies and see what's incoming. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies, open. See, we are getting to know each other. Admirals, we're at the part of the show when we open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Last week's community question was, will you be picking up an old lockbox? Which one are you hoping for? And what's your guess on what the next one and its prizes will be? Neon Phase wrote on PriorityOnePodcast.com, I'm not sure that I really want anything else, but always as soon as it's out, there will be something in the new lockbox that I will want. I usually pick up 10 keys, and that's my limit for any new lockbox that comes out. As for any of the old ones, my fleet has the entire bank holding page just for lockboxes, so at any time we can go back and open something from the past. That's a good idea, actually. In fact, I've got quite a few lockboxes in my um, in my bank that I don't really know what to do with. I'm kind of hoping that I come into a large amount of energy credits at some point, maybe an inheritance. Um, but yeah, it, that that's a good thing to do, to just keep them just in case. Some of the older ones will actually sell for a decent amount on the exchange, but it sort of ebbs and flows, and not immediately after a replay, usually. Small Yoda posted on PriorityOnePodcast.com. As for the next lockbox, I'm betting it will be a Krenum lockbox with the grand prize inside it being Anorax's timeship, and the ship purchasable through the low-buy store being a Krenum warship. There will probably be Krenum Doff packs, and I bet that the officers within these packs would have powers to reduce the cooldown time on some boff abilities, or give your projectile or energy weapons some bonus shield penetration. If my prediction does indeed become a reality, this will be the first lockbox that I actually invest in. And Small Yoda, I think you might want to uh, get your cash out. <laughs> yeah, had a few uh, few spot on things. Not exactly yep. right. I think the time ship is probably something we won't see until some episode 
content if it, if it comes out to be similar to Anorax's, but I'd be surprised if they didn't throw it in at some point. Mm-hmm. But uh, he even uh, scored the cooldown time on some of the DOF abilities. Yep. Logical. Time yep. shenanigans. Tobias LTF commented via PriorityOnePodcast.com. I think with all the work Cryptic has put into normalizing rewards across the different mission types and difficulties, the same normalization process should be applied to the upgrade costs of all items in the game. It should not cost me an arm and a leg to upgrade a reputation item to Mark 14 Ultra Rare when I can get to the same level and rarity with a similar non-reputation item for far less. I do understand that some of these items are superior to their non-reputation counterparts. However, we've already paid a premium price for them through completing the daily rep projects, item creation project, or a high dilithium cost in the rep store. I feel we are getting double taxed when it comes to upgrading these items, and it should be changed. My goodness, they are much more expensive, those rep items. I do agree with Tobias on that. Al Rivera talks about reworking kits, or more accurately, eliminating them, having the module slots directly on the character. Sounds great, except for one thing. I have three or four kits set up on my main tune. Each one has a full set of modules. If we lose kits, I no longer have my drag and drop kit setups, but I also lose five times as many inventory slots as are currently being taken up by the kits. Instead of 15 modules taking up 3 slots while they're slotted in kits, they'll take up 15. Considering the number of unique modules being released during events and the like, this is going to become more and more of an issue. Subcommander Kananra also posted similar concerns on Reddit. Yeah, that's, uh, that's going to be challenging. Mm-hmm. I don't do enough ground for that, but a lot of people are going to have that issue. And I am storing the unique kits from the summer event, the winter event, and so forth and so on, even though I don't actively use them in a kit right now. It would be nice to get a little expanded bank space sometime. Graham Armitage tweeted us, I really enjoyed hearing about Will Wheaton's interview for You Are OK, and I'm certainly going to check this. Each week, our social media channels are busy with your thoughts, opinions, and suggestions for the show. Please keep them coming. Reach out to us on facebook.com forward slash priority one podcast. Follow us on Twitter at STO Priority One or shoot an email to incoming at priority one podcast.com. Well, that wraps up episode 231 of Priority One Podcast. But before we go, here's a reminder of this week's community question. Now that we have details on the new lockbox, what do you think of the prizes? Admirals, you know we love hearing from you. Let us know what you think of the show and submit your responses for our community question in the comments section on our site, on our Facebook page, or with a Twitter reply. Be sure to catch our episodes every Monday morning by pointing your podcast catchers to feeds.priorityonepodcast.com and stay in touch with us throughout the week by following our social media websites. Head over to facebook.com forward slash priorityonepodcast and give us a like. Or check us out on Twitter via at STO Priority One. You can even join the Priority One podcast chat in-game. Just type forward slash channel underscore join space Priority One. Admirals, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of Priority One podcast. Thanks to our patrons, we've already hit our monthly running costs. 
And thanks to Geek Nation Tours, we can bring you on-site coverage of the 2015 Star Trek Las Vegas convention from our own table at the convention hall. Check out geeknationtours.com to find out how you can make your trip to the convention the most memorable experience ever, this year or next. And don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions' Guard Frequency podcast at guardfrequency.com, covering the ongoing development of Chris Roberts' upcoming space sim, Star Citizen. If you like this show, then listening to Guard Frequency is the logical choice. The Priority One fleet is recruiting, and with a new Tier 5 Starbase, there's never been a better time to join. If you're interested, just shoot us an email with your at handle, and we'll be sure to send you an invite. The email is incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. And now, you can become part of our Klingon Fleet Division, Warriors of Priority One. Today is a good day to join. Special thanks to Teres Cassidy from Geek Nation Tours and Larry Nemechek, Dr. Star Trek, for joining us this week and sharing some awesome stories from their travels with fellow Trekkies like you. And thanks again to Star Trek Online's lead designer, Al Captain Gecko Rivera, for talking to us and answering the hard questions. Thanks to the entire team behind Priority One Podcast for their ongoing, dedicated, and consistent contributions over the years, including our executive producers, Elliot and Elijah, our audio engineer, Michael McDonald, with audio assistance from Brandon Parker, Jake Morgan, and Asmaria Day Post. Thanks to our graphic artist, Romulan Ale. To all our bloggers and their managing editor, L. To the writer of our prelude dramas and foundry reviewer, Jake Morgan. To our video editor, Jerry Tillman. And to consultant, Midnight Shadow 7 of Sweet Media for supporting this show. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. Most importantly, a big thanks to you, the STO community, and our listeners. Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Red alert. Shields up. Ready phasers. Engage. Jace, Stow News, Sync One. This is Kenna, Star Trek Online. Uh, n- <laughs> crap. On Star and Trek Online. <laughs> and you thought we wouldn't have good uh, uh, bloopers. Oh, that that's it, though. That's the blooper. Okay. Star Trek Online News, Sync Two. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, this the is Stone... Kenna, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> oh, goodness. I think, I think they know. Oh, man. It's going to be good. There were many costume updates for those indulging in the one true end game of Star Trek Online. Space Barbie! Yes! A Space Barbie girl, a Space Barbie galaxy. Come on, Space Barbie, let's go party! (laughs) Wait, that's gonna be cut. 
but a heavy tactical emphasis and less squishiness in term of uh, ah. but a heavy tech this is where all the bloopers are going to be isn't it oh dear ah. that's <laughs> right jason's got the next bit he'll get some too don't worry yeah uh, thanks for the vote of confidence yeah, now this he's putting the pressure on me, though. Thanks. It's a double psych out. <laughs> yeah. He's getting us both. <sighs> Besides the ships, some other prizes from the lockbox are new space and ground traits and the Krenim temporal... Uh, la, 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 the dudes that do the stuff, right? Them guys. <laughs> Them guys. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah, it sure is a big load of ships. <laughs> I'm sorry. You have to cut that bit. <laughs> okay. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like you trust Winters to, to make you sound professional. Yeah, he here. will in the main podcast. Uh, okay. I, might have to... I guess that's the I guess that's the, the arrangement you have. Yeah, I might have to butter him up later afterwards, but um, <laughs> I'm sure it'll work. <laughs> Don't get too excited. Right. Oh, no. You're next, Jace. <laughs> yes. Admirals, you know we love hearing from you. Let us know what you think of the show and submit your response for a community question in the comment section of our site, our Facebook page, or with a Twitter reply. Be sure to catch our... (laughs) 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 Oh, sorry, I couldn't resist. Okay. (laughs) Oh, I've got the giggles again, you guys. Okay, I'm better, I'm better. Bring it back, bring it back.